This week on Life and Faith. The key to being a humble thinker and someone who actually knows that you don't know everything is that other people are sources of learning for you. This was so brought home to me when I was a teacher because I went out of university having studied an ancient history degree and got placed into classrooms with performing artists. And I spent most of the first five years of those classrooms learning how do performing artists see the world because I'm nothing like a performing artist. And yet they made my world so much richer. One of the most intimate places you can be with someone is at the moment of their death. This is the only world in which I live. I don't live in another world. I am autonomous and independent and self-sufficient and I will get to decide my good. Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart. And I'm Natasha Moore. And today we've dragged in another CPXer, the one and only Mark Stevens. Mark, good to see you've been with us before. It's good to be here again. Uh, It's kind of a special occasion, Mark. Um, Not just having you on the podcast, obviously, that in and of itself makes it a special occasion. But also we wanted to talk to you about your new book, Hot Off the Press. Well, um, following in the footsteps of your good self uh, in the Reconsidering series, we've already had The Pleasures of Pessimism, which you kicked off, and then Tim Costello gave us The Cost of Compassion, and now it's my turn. And Mark, tell us what's yours, what's the title? Mine is called The End of Thinking, but it has a question mark at the end of it. The End of Thinking? Mm. Mm -hmm. Yes, so what am I asking? (laughs) Well, that's what we're devoting the whole book to, and maybe this podcast. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's probably fair to say that this whole area of thinking and doing it well or badly or at all is a challenge for all of us in some way. You know, what would help is a pros and cons list for our options. Jim, don't take this the wrong way. Are you going to take this the wrong way? It's hard to tell so far. You use your brain too much. I'm sorry, are you advocating that I use it less? Sometimes the smartest people don't think at all. You just came up with that. As I was saying it. Yeah. Okay, so for the 1.5% increase, pro, everyone gets a little bit. Con, you look like a nerd. Con, no one gets as much as they did last year. Pro, you get to share your pros and cons list with the other nerds. I've been studying Michael for years, and I've condensed what I've learned into this chart. How Michael spends his time. As you can see, we are procrastinating and distracting others. And this tiny sliver here is critical thinking. I made it bigger so that you could see it. Okay, so for those who don't recognise the fairly distinctive tones of Steve Carell there in the office, that's the American office, that's Michael Scott as that ridiculous boss. But whatever you make of all of that, Mark, looking around day to day, what evidence is there that thinking is a problem for us? Uh, Facebook, (laughs) um, Twitter. uh, If you go to any cafe, if you go to any place where people are having a discussion, your barbecue, uh, your family dinner... Uh, people are going to be thinking, people are going to be talking about their opinions. And I think on every forum that I inhabit, people demonstrate idiot brain or poor thinking. Do you ever think that you might be doing that yourself? Pretty much this book is a recount of all of the ways that I've failed at thinking. So it's really a confession. It's a confession from start to finish uh, because we're all susceptible to this. Yeah. Why is it therefore so hard to do this well? Because thinking is something that we easily assume that we do well. It's something that 
even if we're really educated, uh, we assume that we do it well and we do it well about everything, but actually it can be quite hard. And after you're out of those early days of school, you probably don't actually think very much about your thinking. It's hard to stop and actually go, maybe I'm wrong and not as good at this as I thought I was. A bit of a spin out though to start turning your attention to how you're thinking. Yeah, it's a little bit like when the doctor says, I want you to focus on your breathing and something that's been entirely normal for you for the entirety of your life has all of a sudden become really hard to do. And so when you think about your thinking, it does feel uncomfortable. But once you push past that discomfort, it becomes something that you can actually start to spot the ways that you go wrong. Okay, Mark, so we're not always fabulous at thinking. Can you give us an example from your own life where that has been the case? Well, this is the story that opens the book. I was in Memphis, Tennessee with my wife. She is an absolute devotee of Elvis Presley. And <laughs> I am a cheap man. I am a, a, a frugal man. I have Scottish blood that runs through these veins. And so I decided to book a hotel that was three miles out of town in order to save us 40 bucks a night. But of course, I had to take cabs in every night. You weren't in order thinking to... very well then. I wasn't thinking very well then because basically I spent all the money that I saved getting into town with cabs. Anyhow, one evening, we're leaving Memphis to go back to our hotel, which is a long way away. Yeah. And as I was paying the cab driver, I mistook the American greenback, which all their money looks the same. And so instead of paying him like 7 or $8 for the cab fare, I paid him 26 bucks for the cab fare because I put a 20 in for a one. Well, the next night I was seething. I was absolutely livid and I wanted a win. And so the next night when we'd gone into town, as we're about to leave town again, I wanted a cab again and I'm waiting out the front of a bus shelter, not for a bus, but for a cab. And a guy walks up to me who I don't know, a complete stranger. He's missing most of his teeth. He's wearing a leather jacket. And he says to me, do you want to ride? Okay. So let's stop there. When the processes are going well here, what might happen and then what did happen? <laughs> Simon, you would, of course, say no. <laughs> but I said yes. I said, how much would you like to charge me for the ride? He said $6. I said, well, I can get a cab for $6. He said $5. <laughs> and for reasons that I still don't understand, I said, you've got yourself a deal. And at that point, I climbed into the back of a beaten up old Pontiac. The steering wheel was gaffer taped on. He says to me, oh, I don't actually have the keys to the car. I've got to go and get them from my friend. <laughs> to this day, I still don't know if the friend actually knows that that Pontiac was driven to the outer <laughs> suburbs of Memphis. But he then proceeded to drive us to our uh, hotel uh, when we were let out. My wife hugged me in a way that I've never been hugged before, maybe because she was trying to kill me. And <laughs> then she looked at me and said, what were you thinking? <laughs> One of the things that I really like about the bookmark is that you give us a bunch of kind of words and phrases and ideas as sort of handholds to find our way through this quite, you know, thinking about thinking is hard. Um, so we need those kind of signposts along the way. Um, I want to do a bit of a kind of glossary here with sure. some of the um, quite fun terms that you use. There are things like the Dunning-Kruger effect and steel manning. Um, some of these will be familiar to people. Some of them will be totally new. Some of them were definitely new to me. Um, I want to start with the most ridiculous sounding one, which I may pronounce correctly. <laughs> it's 
ultra-crepidarianism. Yes, ultra-crepidarianism. The habit of giving expert opinions on areas where you have no expert knowledge. So it's the, the idea that because you're good at one area of knowledge, that all of a sudden you're good at every area of knowledge. So it's like when you ask your doctor for gardening tips, or it's like <laughs> when you ask me for cooking tips, it actually comes from a guy called Pliny the Elder. He was telling a story of an artist who was uh, critiqued by a shoemaker who had seen a shoe incorrectly painted in a painting. <laughs> and he picked up the artist on it and said, you need to fix up that shoe. And then because he got that one bit right, he then started to critique other aspects of the painting. And so the original saying goes back to, shoemaker, do not go beyond the shoe. <laughs> Fun. Um, so we shouldn't comment on things that we're not like, that we don't have a PhD in? We should comment humbly and we uh -huh. should comment uh, with a sense that I might have a lot to learn. So, yeah, talk away. But if you're going to come to me for gardening tips, maybe I want to preface that by... Is it the case? Or I've heard this is the case, but I'm not sure. Even with a PhD, that's probably a good approach. Yeah. Some of the time. <laughs> and Mark, are you using terms like that at barbecues these days? Or what's happening? <laughs> He's a fun yes, guy. Yes, yes. <laughs> People love when I refer to my ultra-crepidarianism at barbecues. <laughs> <laughs> well, what about the other term, Dunning-Kruger effect? So the Dunning-Kruger effect is something that actually is in popular culture, I think, now. It goes back to a study in 1999 by a guy, two guys called David Dunning and Justin Kruger, which essentially tried to teach or measure uh, people's self-awareness of their own competence. So do I have the ability to know how competent I am in a field? And basically they found that whether you're looking at humor or whether you're looking at logic or whether you're looking at grammar or a whole bunch of different areas that they tested, that people who had very low expertise in something, even after a very short amount of studying something, thought that they were absolutely fabulous at it. So we have this habit of once we've read one article, once we know one little thing about something, we automatically think that we're experts. That's the Dunning-Kruger effect. Yeah, so a lot of pitfalls. <laughs> One term that people do throw around a lot is confirmation bias. Um, I'll get you to explain what that actually is. I feel like we use the term, we don't necessarily know how to define it. Um, but as an illustration, first let's hear from Carol Tavris. She's an American social psychologist who, she wrote a book among many others called Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me. Uh, here she is talking about chocolate. New York Times has the following research report. Several studies reported in the Journal of Nutrition showed that after eating chocolate, test subjects had increased levels of antioxidants in their blood. Chocolate contains flavonoids, antioxidants that have been associated with decreased risk of heart disease and stroke. Yes! <laughs> I knew it! I knew it! The next paragraph. Uh, much of the research was funded by Mars Incorporated. The <laughs> and the Chocolate Manufacturers Association. These studies were small and preliminary and none were randomized, double-blind trials. <laughs> you know what? I don't care. So confirmation bias is the habit that once we believe something to be true, then all that we can see in terms of evidence afterwards is things that confirm what we already believe. So once we hold to a belief, 
when we want to do our research, all that we focus on and all that we ever find are things that confirm what we already hold to. Because it's really hard to change your mind. And so we might say to people, do your research. And we might imply that we have this open mind. But it's actually really hard to have an open mind. It's hard to be challenged. It's just easier to find evidence that already backs up the way I am. Things feel true. Mm. Mm. So it's good to be, at least one level, some self-awareness here is helpful, right? Mm. Indeed, the whole book is really about dealing with yourself as a thinker, as you as a person, and you're going to have to wrestle with the fact that good thinking is going to require effort, it's going to require courage, it's going to require admitting fault, it's going to require humility. Those things are hard to do, and so you're wrestling not just with the fact that you might have got an idea wrong, you've got to wrestle with the fact that you're proud or you're someone who doesn't like admitting that you made a mistake. I feel like some of this is a little alarming in that you might be starting to get a little bit of self-awareness, but also you're, you're recognizing that the people you're relying on might are similarly kind of beleaguered with this issue, right? So it's, uh, we, we need some solutions to, to some of this, and we're going to get to some of those as we, as we go here. But could you just help us out a bit here by explaining some of the other terms? Steel manning, that was one you used in the book. Seemed important. Yeah, so Steel Manning comes from uh, a blogger, actually. So you might have heard of the term straw manning. Straw manning is when you try and destroy an opposing argument by painting it in the weakest version possible. So you you deal with your dislike of uh, someone else by painting them in the very, very worst possible light, implying that they're stupid or they're mean or they're ugly or in some other way incredibly weak. And you Still, pick up the worst part of their argument. You pick argument, up the worst part of their argument. Yeah. And, and so you see this in politics all the time. Uh, steel manning is the exact opposite. It's saying, I'm going to go and find the best version of someone's argument. Indeed, I'm going to try and make my opponent's argument the best it possibly can be, even if I'm the one who's making it the best it can possibly be. Because if you can deal with the strongest version of an opposing argument, then your argument will be stronger for it. It actually serves everybody's good by actually making your opponent the best they can possibly be. Are there other kind of tips and tricks, practices, habits that you'd recommend for people to be better thinkers? So one of the chief habits is not something that is native to me, but is something that I've taken from the American thinker, Alan Jacobs, which is he talks it the give it five minutes principle. So we live in a world where everything is immediate reaction and I feel something, therefore I spew something out. And because we have devices that can publish those thoughts to the internet within a second, uh, we then write and say things immediately that are permanently there recorded for us. And so one of the things is to say, give it five minutes, maybe give it five hours, maybe Mm. give it five days, because if it's true, it's probably going to be true by Friday if it's also true on Monday. That's a first habit. A second habit is to recognize that we all live within tribes and we all like to hang out with people who think like us. And so it's actually good to actively cultivate relationships or to read things that are outside your tribe. Do you know people who don't think like you? And if you don't, maybe you want to spend some time with them before you form a settled opinion about something. In terms of the newspapers that you read or the television news or the internet curated news feed that you inhabit, maybe you want to consider, who am I not hearing here? Who am I not listening to? Even just as an exercise of going, 
what are the things that I might be missing out on, even if I know I already disagree with these people? So they're two habits of patience, but also the habit of reading widely enough to know that you have a sense of what other people think, not just the people who are like you. You're listening to Life and Faith, and we're talking about thinking with Mark Stevens, this thing that we all do or we think we do, but that's a bit more complicated than it sounds. And Mark, you're making it really sound a bit complicated here. Yes. <laughs> I'm not apologising for that. Good. Um, so we're talking about your new book, The End of Thinking, question mark. Uh, so far, we've kind of been talking more about how we think and how we can do it better. But taking a step back here, the bigger question is perhaps why we think, what it's for. Uh, that should probably frame the how we go about doing it. Um, so first, I kind of want to ask you about your why when it comes to this book. We at CPX have been writing these mini books. You could have picked just about any topic in the whole wide world. Why thinking? I think two primary reasons that are very personal. Uh, the first is that from a very young age, I've been someone who's defined myself by being the smartest person in my own estimation. <laughs> that is, I've loved the idea that I'm the smartest person in the room. And it turned me into an arrogant so-and-so. <laughs> and therefore, the, the personal wrestle with the fact that I wasn't always right but I did actually want to be able to find out things that were true and to help people understand what the world was really like has meant that I've been on a journey and we write best when we've been on a journey. The second thing is, is that prior to coming to CPX, I was an educator at a college and I was working with artists and various other people who didn't see themselves as thinkers, but I was trying to teach them thinking. And it became very apparent to me how important it was to be able to teach them how not only to find out great things within the world, but also to share them in a way that other people were helped rather than hindered by that. Probably the big thing overall is that I just noticed that once we get drunk on knowledge, we often become horrible people. And I'm trying to avoid that. <laughs> Now, Mark, why does it matter? Now, if you're a world-renowned expert or something and people are asking your opinions all the time, about perhaps you're in government, you're in politics, I guess it really does matter how well you're thinking. But most people just have opinions. We might share them down the pub or on social media. How much does it really matter that we get this right or pay attention to this? Yeah, it's true that the public intellectuals, the people who have a platform, do have an inordinate influence on our lives. And that can sometimes lead us to think that, well, if I don't have that platform, then I'm not that important. And yet if I think over my life, so many of my life decisions have been changed by a conversation at a cafe, a conversation over a beer, a conversation at a barbecue. And so it may only be that I'm only changing one person's life or four people's lives or 20 person's lives, but that matters. If every person's life matters, then anybody that I'm trying to change their mind. And I notice that when we have conversations, we do want to change each other's minds. We do want people to agree with us about whatever we think about climate change or vaccines or who to vote for. We do want to change people's minds and their actions. And so we do change people's lives. And in an interconnected age where we can publish our thoughts, then we do actually have an outsized influence that we don't actually realise at first. 
So thinking, you know, may seem unimportant to us, which you're saying it's definitely not. It also can feel like a bit of a sort of cold or detached thing. You know, thinking is a lot less sexy than feeling. Um, And the way we talk about it is often in quite abstract ways or um, with metaphors that are very kind of militarized or aggressive. Are there better ways, do you think, to think about thinking? Yeah, so you're right that we talk in really military metaphors. This was pointed out by a couple of uh, scholars of metaphor called Lakoff and Johnson who talked about all of our metaphors for thinking are about war. You know, So it's kind of like I'm going to defeat your argument and, and, and I'm going to attack your position. And so if we actually thought about thinking as a journey that we're going on or as a dialogue or as an opportunity to be helpful – I think the big thing I would love to go is to how can I use my mind to serve other people? How can I sit there and go, hey, finding out what's really going on would actually be really helpful for us to be able to do this or to do that. So I think we need to focus on the fact that thinking is ultimately practical. It changes what we do in life. And it's also part of how we love one another. Yeah, this is a really important part of this book. So um, it's not just an intellectual exercise for you. It's more how do, how do I become a better person and therefore be a better person to be around, right? I've got to, and, and perhaps have a richer life because I've exposed myself to different views and so on. So tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, so I want to look at, and I've always had the desire that even in all the things that I'm expert at, if I can't say them to someone who has no interest and no expertise in the topic, then what value is it? If I'm just talking to the guild, if I'm just talking to the group of academics who know my topic, then I feel insufficient at that point. And I want it to be that if I know something, how might I share that with a five-year-old, with a 50-year-old, with a 25-year-old, with someone who's educated, with someone who's uneducated, In the end, I want my thinking to be, I want people to respond to me and go, I'm glad Mark was around and actually brought that idea and we had a discussion about it. So it seems to me there's at least two elements to this. One, you're going to be able to serve people better in the way you've just described, but also you're going to benefit from it too, right? Your life will be richer by hearing from me and from others. Yeah, so... The key to being a humble thinker and someone who actually knows that you don't know everything is that other people are sources of learning for you, whether they uh, fit into the category of smart person or clever person. I've found that every person teaches me something about the world. And it's only when I can have my ears open long enough to actually hear their perspectives, see the way they understand the world, that I actually grow and develop. And so enormous parts of me. This was so brought home to me when I was a teacher because I went out of university having studied an ancient history degree and I went and got placed into classrooms with performing artists. And I spent most of the first five years of those classrooms learning how do performing artists see the world because I'm nothing like a performing artist. And yet they made my world so much richer Mm. and they're far more clever than they give themselves credit for. This is a bit of a digression, but part of me just wants to defend academics who talk to other academics. Like this is also, a, you know, like not everyone needs to translate their difficult specialised work to everybody around them. 
Like there's value in that kind of... Absolutely. So those people need to do their research, but that research ultimately needs to be able to serve people in a way that's usable and functional. If it's just simply people talking about things that don't matter to people, that can become uh, a kind of game within itself. But I'm not anti-academic. I love the (laughs) academic realm. Right. And you're trying to say that the best part of that would be to gift other people in a way that they can hear the things that you've been privileged enough to learn, right? Yes. And also to not have such a high opinion of oneself if one is an academic, but to rather sit there and go, I've been given these gifts in order that other people might benefit. Yeah. So if we're thinking about this as not an abstract thing and not just an intellectual exercise and so on, let's make this even more personal. I want to know how do you go then at being wrong and has that changed kind of over time or even over the course of writing this book well the simple answer is i'm terrible at being wrong (laughs) i hate it i i want to resist it i'm allergic to it uh how do i go with being wrong uh have i got better at it a little I've got a little better at it. So when I was much younger, uh, when I was an angry young man in my 20s, for someone to prove that I was wrong was basically to destroy my identity. It was to take away who I was as a person and my greatest claim to fame and my greatest attraction to other people was, well, Mark Smart. So when you have your identity so bound up with being right, then to be wrong means that you end as a person. And so if anybody is in that situation, they're always going to defend, defend, defend. I think my natural reaction when I'm wrong is to want to lash out and like a cornered animal. I'm, I'm wanting to make sure that they're understanding that they're stupid. But actually what I want is at the end, I want to try and be friends. I want to try and get my point across because I think it's probably true. But if in the end I find out that I'm wrong, it's okay because I'm in a better place. In fact, we're all in a better place if Mark's been proved wrong and he is in fact wrong. But Mark, the question of good thinking surely is is a lot more than just arriving at the correct answer to something. It's much broader than that, isn't it? Yeah, well, life is not an exam. It's not something that we're trying to get a grade on and, hey, I got 100%. It's about understanding people in all their wondrous complexity. It's about understanding the world is far more wonderful and intricate than, than we understand. And so by the capacity to think widely and to listen to other people, we get to understand them better. We get to understand who we are better. And we get to enjoy life so much more. It becomes a far richer experience of relationship and understanding I'm a very, very small set of eyes on a very, very big world. Now, in your book, you write about lots of the ways we fail at this. And, and it's, <clears throat> you know, it's a little bit <laughs> alarming. At some points, I was feeling like, well, what hope do we have, actually, Uh, given all those limitations of being able to think well? Yeah, I think we have a profound hope because even though we think poorly, I think we're right to assume that we do often think okay. So when we say to people after particular events, what were you thinking? That question presumes that we should be thinking and that we often are thinking in, in a way that is poorer than we should. And 
we know so many great things. We've invented vaccines in the shortest period of time possible, okay? We're broadcasting this out of over technologies that didn't exist 40, 50 years ago. We have this capacity to be live together in a democracy and to be able to study these wonderful subjects. So human beings can know an enormous amount. In fact, the reason we need to talk about this is not because we're so bad at it, but because we have been good at it, we've sometimes forgotten the fact that we still make lots of mistakes. And so human beings are capable of lots and lots of wonderful things, which is why we want to write books on it. It's why we want to think about it, because we are actually capable of doing this very, very well, so long as we recognise we're not always awesome. Are there specific ways that your faith as a Christian has shaped your experience of this topic and the conclusions that you've come to? Yeah. My faith shapes two particular areas that I'd want to talk about here. The first is the hope that we can know things well, because I believe that we are made in the image of God and that we are made to know God and to know his world. And therefore, I understand that my mind has been formed to be able to understand things about the way the world works and that God wants me to understand him. He wants me to understand his world. And therefore, I can go out and discover things about the world. In fact, the, the earliest chapters of the Bible talk about the invitation for people who have been created by God to go and explore the world and discover what's wonderful in it. So that fills me with hope and the thought that we can actually progress in our knowledge. The second thing that my Christian faith does is it helps me to have humility. And it helps me to have humility in two ways. The first is... Even though God has made me in his image, I'm not God, so I'm not going to know everything like God. And so therefore, I'm going to be limited. I need to understand that I not only need to rely on him, but also on other people to share with me what they know about the world. But also, I have the capacity to be wrong in ways that are just mean and ugly and disgusting, which the Bible calls sin, but is a way simply of referring to the fact that we need to be humble about the fact that we not only get things wrong, we sometimes deliberately get things wrong because it protects us and helps us. And so my faith helps me to be both hopeful and to be humble. This has been Life and Faith with me, Simon Smart and Natasha Moore. Thanks to our colleague, Mark Stevens, whose book, The End of Thinking, is officially out on May 24, but you can pre-order your copy at kurong.com. Uh, and also pick up the previous titles in the Reconsidering series while you're at it, The Pleasures of Pessimism and The Cost of Compassion. They're only $7.99 each. Collect the series. Next week. Grew up in Barrel, had a very... Um lovely idyllic childhood and to be exposed to that amount of violence and suffering I guess wasn't so much traumatic it was my goodness we've got to do something in the world to help people in these situations and so yes it was formative it helped to hone my desires to serve and commit my life to helping those less fortunate than ourselves.